Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Uh, We're going to be in Genesis, like our series says. Uh, So if you have your Bible, open up to there. uh, And uh, there's Bibles in the back if you want to grab one of those. We're going to be there the whole Uh, this whole morning. You know, in Genesis chapter 15, we are told uh, one of the most commonly repeated, talked about sections in the Bible. It's where God speaks to Abraham and tells him that he's going to uh, have a son, uh, even though he's a little bit on the older side by this point, and that his descendants are going to be so numerous, they're going to be like as numerous as the stars that his descendants are going to basically change the world uh, as God's people who are living out the plan that God has for them. Uh, And God keeps repeating this over and over throughout Genesis over the next few chapters. And then, good news, it actually happens. And Sarah, his wife, gets pregnant, even though she's a little bit older than we would expect for being able to have kids. Uh, Abraham's really older than we would expect for being able to help in that process. Uh, but they end up having a child. They name him Isaac. And God's promise begins in their family line. God shows himself to be good. But it was actually decades between when God made the promise and when Isaac was actually born. And in that time period, things did not go as nice and neat as I just said. In fact, Abram and Sarah basically took the whole thing into their own hands and tried to force it to happen. Uh, Sarah takes her servant, she gives her to Abraham and says, here, go make a baby with my servant. You don't need to be a psychologist or a biblical scholar to know that's not going to work out particularly well, right? Uh, We can all cringe a little bit and be like, not go over well in our house at least. I'm not quite sure how that was expected to be the right plan. And so this morning we're going to talk about this very faulty plan that Sarah and Abraham tried to live out, tried to force God into in the story of the woman who is stuck in the middle of it all, a woman named Hagar, her son Ishmael, who's born, and this terrible situation, but in the middle of it, Hagar is seen by God and names God in a really powerful and honestly very unique way, as we'll talk about. Rich Velotis is a pastor and an author, and he wrote that the first person in Scripture to name God is Hagar. She's a woman, a single mother, an African servant. And she says, I have seen the one who sees me. And God calls her by name. Hagar, Abraham, Sarah, all these biblical characters you may have heard about And, you know, we do have a tendency, uh, it's not just us now, but throughout history, we've had this tendency uh, as followers of Jesus to try and make people in the Bible maybe a little bit more perfect than they actually are. Have you ever encountered this? You'll you'll hear somebody talking about somebody like David or Peter or or somebody in the Bible, and, and they're like, all this nice flowery language about how amazing they are. And you're sitting there and you're like, I read the Bible too. And like, 
David, yeah, sure, like, good stuff, but he killed a dude. Like, he had an affair, maybe even multiple affairs. Like, uh, what about, like, Moses acted in such strong anger that God didn't let him go into the promised land. Like, uh, Peter cut a dude's ear off just because he wanted to. Like, it didn't really do anything. Like, he just cut his ear off. Like, John, you know, the beloved disciple, him and his brother went to Jesus and said, make us your vice presidents in the kingdom of God. Like, that's a power move. These are not characteristics of perfect people who do everything correct, right? That's just the reality of people throughout the Bible. Jesus is the only perfect person in the Bible. We can get that out there right now, just so we're all on the same page. The rest are like you and me. They're human. And they mess up. Sometimes in huge ways, just like you and me, right? We can all raise our hands and admit, I've messed up sometimes in huge ways. That is normal. Abraham and Sarah are not perfect. And if we go into their story expecting them to be perfect, and then saying like, wait a second, they messed up pretty big, they must be out. We're kind of missing the reality of how God works with humanity. The grace that he gives us, the way that he works and gives us second chances, that he comes and he still brings us back to himself. But the reality of Abraham and Sarah is that they were human and they had issues. And this story is filled with failure, with injustice, with anxiety, with despair, just like real life, right? Just like what we go through at times. But the beautiful thing is, in the middle of this messed up story, God shows up in a very powerful way, and everything begins to change. So, if you have your Bible, open it up to Genesis 16, and let's start to read the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar as we start in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children, so go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abraham had settled in the land of Canaan. That little sentence does give you a date. 10 years since that initial promise have already passed at this point. That's a long time. It's a long time of waiting for God to come and do something. Verse 4, So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, This is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Sounds like a very fun argument to have. And Abram replied, Look, she's your servant. Deal with her as you see fit. Just perfect responses going on. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. Okay, let's pause there and just see the, see the landscape that we've just had laid out before us. 
Hagar's been treated with contempt, treated harshly, dealt with as Sarai saw fit. That's the language that we're given about this. That is pretty terrible. That is not the language given to a equal in this situation, right? Uh, you would never do that to somebody who you consider to be on par with you. That's the language given to somebody who is being treated as a slave, who is beneath you, who has to deal with whatever it is that you throw their way. They have no rights, privileges in this situation. The word wife that's used here in this instance means a woman belonging to a man. Thankfully, that's not the way that wife is always defined in the Bible. However, that is how it's defined here. Hagar, as a servant, belonged to Sarah. And then Sarah gave her to Abram, and she belonged to Abram. And then Sarah didn't like that situation and asked for her back. And so Abram gave her back to Sarah, and she belonged to Sarah once again. Hagar's just tossed back and forth, kind of like a rag doll, in between this dysfunctional relationship that can't make up their mind on what it is that they want to do at this time. And this language of give and take is actually the same exact meaning. It's the same exact like way that it's placed together, as well as words, as another very uh, well-known passage in the book of Genesis. Let's see if you recognize it. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. She took and then she gave. This is the story, as you probably realize, of Adam and Eve in the garden of the first sin at the very beginning of all. And it's the same exact language used by the same exact author telling these two stories. I'll just leave the implications of what that means with us for a second while I explain something else. So historians, theologians, etc., have seen multiple documents from ancient Mesopotamia during this time that contain marriage uh, agreements. And the language in these states that if a wife is unable to conceive, to bear an heir, so to speak, uh, then she is responsible for providing her husband with a surrogate, with somebody else who is able to conceive and, and have a child to continue on the family line. Now, in those days, that would not, the surrogate would not have been somebody who's paid uh, for, for their work who, or somebody who volunteers. It would have been a slave or a servant. That's just the way that it worked during that time. So a servant or a slave, depending on the situation, was forced into this relationship. They have no choice in this. It is the wife's duty to find that person to force them into it, and that is the way that this worked. Hagar had no rights, no say, nothing in this situation that we're seeing right here. And on top of that, if the uh, surrogate, the, who is a slave or a servant, didn't treat the wife in a way that the wife liked then all rights and privileges 
were immediately taken away. They were placed on the lowest rung of slavery for life. No rights, no privileges, nothing. That's what your life looks like forever. So imagine Hagar in this situation. She has no say in what's being done to her at all. She is just this pawn in this dysfunctional relationship. If you go, and I would encourage you to, to get a fuller, but I don't have time to dig into all of it, but like go and read the chapters surrounding chapter 16 and read about Abram and Sarah's relationship. It is constantly messed up. Abram treats her terribly, multiple different times. God yells at him. He still goes and does the same thing. Like, he is not a good husband, if we're being honest. Like, Abraham's lots of things. He's not a good husband. Sarah bears the brunt of this. On top of that, she's barren and she's unable to give birth. Nothing is healthy in this situation. You know, if we're going to connect these two Genesis passages, like Adam and Eve, before sinning, I would assume had a pretty good relationship, right? I feel like that's a safe assumption. You know, there's no sin in it. They probably know how to relate to each other decently well at this point. But even after that, it seems like Adam and Eve have a good relationship. We're at least not told about any like massive things that went on between them. So Adam and Eve have this give and take back and forth in a good relationship. Abram and Sarah have this give and take in a bad, dysfunctional, unhealthy relationship. But both of them took matters into their own hands. That's where the sin begins to creep in. You know, again, like I said, like surrogate, all of this was normative for their time. It was a cultural norm. It was the way you did things. But normative is not always good. And normative is definitely not always godly. And so I wonder, as we look at our own lives, are there ways that we can look at our culture and at like normative ways of doing things and say, what does it look like for us to live in culturally normative ways and yet not be living in good or godly ways? What would that look like for us. Let me toss out uh, a few fun ideas. You know, just to kind of get the ball rolling, working 60 to 80 hours a week. Culturally normative, right? Lots of people do it. Got to hustle to make it, especially in the area that we live in. Uh, jobs require a lot of time. This happens. But when you work that much, you know what it doesn't allow? It doesn't allow space for healthy practices and relationships. It, it doesn't allow time for building relationships that point you to Jesus. It doesn't leave you space and time to pray and connect with Jesus. It doesn't leave you much time to go on date nights with your spouse or to be able to go to basketball games for your kids. It encringes and starts to take over everything in your world. You know, something else that's kind of culturally normative at this point is just sliding into somebody else's DMs, uh, throwing it out to somebody who you barely know uh, because you only really want one or two things. You're just feeling lonely, but you're not worried about if they feel loved 
or if they feel cared for, all that you really want in that moment is to get your loneliness dealt with and to get what it is that you want out of the relationship. You know, it's normal to have a fight with your spouse and then to go grab a glass of wine, a couple of beers, or some whiskey or whatever other drink that you would prefer immediately following. But doing that usually stops you from being able to actually deal with what's going on in your marriage and in yourself that's causing these fights. It usually makes it hard to actually process through things, and all that it does at best is make you feel slightly better in the moment and probably it just makes you feel less. It just covers it up. You know, it's culturally normative to throw all of our free time into activism on an issue that we really care about. Even though what often starts to happen in those instances is that that starts to take the place that Jesus should take in your life. Because you start to create this picture of who God is that looks like what it is that you're fighting for instead of allowing Jesus to speak in and to say, actually, that's taken my spot as king. That's culturally normative to do. It's culturally normative to come home and spend all of your evenings watching Netflix, watching TikTok videos, mindlessly scrolling on Instagram and Facebook, even though the reason that you're doing it is because you feel the pain of loneliness and the quietness, and you're just not quite sure how it is that you can deal with the reality of what it is that you're feeling. Many, maybe even most people in our culture would look at that list of things and say, so what? There's nothing wrong with those things. Everybody does it. That's just what we do in 2023. These are the ways that we cope with life, that we just make it. You might even be rewarded for doing some of these. Abram would not have been judged for having a concubine who then gave him an heir. It was culturally normative. But here's the problem. Abram and Sarah were trying to use this normative practice to gain the gift that God had promised to give them. Are we living in normal ways because we're tired of waiting for God to come and to do what it is that he promised that he was going to do? Are we substituting? You know, I've hinted before that the, time, the year before I went to seminary was not the best lived time of my life. I was 27. Uh, I was pretty frustrated with life. I was pretty bored with life. Uh, and my hastily assembled plans kept falling apart, as hastily assembled plans often do. Uh, and so for about a year, I just kind of stopped trying, to be honest. I kept up a really good front. I still, you know, had a good respectable job. I, I was very involved in church. I was leading a small group. Like, I did all the things that I felt like I, I was supposed to do. But I also started to kind of change who I was hanging out with to be around people who were in similar spots so that I didn't feel bad about the other ways that I was letting my life start to slip. 
And I did what many of us have done. I started living in a more culturally normative way. What that looked like for me at that point was that I started going uh, with this group of friends to a specific bar probably four to five times a week. Didn't get drunk, so there's no sin in it, right? But also nobody around me was living in a particularly healthy way, and so they weren't going to start pushing buttons. Nobody was calling me out on how, how I was living. I was choosing wisely who I could be around at that point so that I didn't get pushed. And around that time, I moved in with a couple of guys who were in a similar spot. And so it was just everyone around me was kind of in that stuck, frustrated place. Nobody trying very hard. Nobody really asking God, how is it that I should be living? Because we mostly all knew. And basically that became my life for about a year. Work, church, small group, all the right things, right? And then hanging out with these friends, socially drinking four to five nights a week. Perfectly normative. Definitely not godly. And it wasn't until I moved for seminary and God like forced me out of the spiral that I was in that I was able to look back and to realize like, shoot, I went that far down and I didn't even acknowledge it. I just kind of started living it. Friends, don't be like me. Don't allow yourself to get to that place where you just give up, where you start just kind of going along because you're tired and you don't feel like trying. We cannot have an expectation that we can just do what everybody else is doing and still be living in the will of God. Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands. They lived like everybody else, and it brought nothing but pain into their life and into all who were involved in it. Friends, I just want to say, if this is where you're at today, allow this to be a spot where you say, okay, Jesus, I know I need a change. Don't keep going down that path dead-end path that leads you nowhere good. It'll take some repentance probably. It'll take some humility. It'll definitely take some life changes, but it's worth it to be doing what it is that God actually has for you. If that's you this morning, don't reject the offer of grace and love and forgiveness that Jesus wants to place in front of you this morning. Allow this to be the space where things change in your heart, where you begin to change. So let's look at Genesis 16 again. We just heard that Hagar ran away. Shouldn't be any surprise that she ran away. This is a pretty messed up situation, but let's see what happens in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road. And the angel said to her, Hagar, Sarah's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress, submit to her authority. And then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. 
And the angel also said, You are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. And she also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named the well of the living one who sees me, and it can still be found there. So Hagar gave Abram a son, and Abraham named him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. So let's pivot and let's talk about Hagar at this point. According to theologians, this is the only time in ancient Near Eastern literature, which means all literature from that time, not just Christian or Jewish, that a deity speaks to a woman and calls her by name. That's astonishing. The only time that a woman is talked to by a deity and all the language from that, all the literature from that time is right here when he calls out to Hagar. Hagar's the only woman called by name by God in ancient literature, and she's the only person in the Old Testament to give God a name. Nobody else in the Old Testament gives God a title, an actual name, and begins to call him by that other than Hagar. She's seen and she is known by the one who sees her. And in response to this, God tells her to return and to submit. Does that kind of bother anybody else? I read that and I'm like, dude, like you're not reading the room correctly. Like this is not a good situation for her. Like, come on, God. Like, do we really have to like... So I, I was thinking about this and reading other smarter people than me. And I kind of started to see why this would be told to her. If you think of her situation a little bit more black and white, she is a slave who has ran away. Do you know what happens to slaves who, who run away? Nothing good. She has no money. She has no supplies. She has nothing. She's in the middle of the desert. You know, maybe just the terrain gets her and she dies that way. Maybe she's captured by somebody else and she gets put into an even worse living situation than the one that she's in. Her life is not good, but it could actually be worse. Sometimes in hard situations, the answer that we feel like God is giving us seems really, really hard. But if we're able to see the long view of it, we can recognize actually out of all the terrible options, that was the best one. And I think that's kind of what we see happening here with Hagar. Because she looks at all of this and she sees what God's saying to her and she says, you are the God who sees me. The word for it is El Roy in the Hebrew. It's the name that she gives to God. Jason Gavery wrote that God's words and interactions with Hagar have given her agency and dignity. The slave servant who has been tossed around, who has been treated terribly, has an experience that like very few people throughout the history of the world have. And everything changes in that moment. 
by God coming and seeing her. And all that we're told that happens after that is very factual, very historical document sort of thing. She returns, she gives birth to a son, she names him God Hears, and Abram was 86. <laughs> like that important uh, information was all placed there. But the story is not actually over. As Sarah talked about last week, Sarah gives, gives birth uh, to Isaac and everything changes. So let's look at where their story continues in Genesis 21, if you have it open, verse 8. Look at this with me. When Isaac grew up and was about to be weaned, Abram prepared a huge feast to celebrate the occasion. But Sarah saw Ishmael, the son of Abraham, and her servant Hagar, making fun of her son Isaac. So she turned to Abram and demanded, Get rid of that slave woman and her son. He is not going to share the inheritance with my son Isaac. I won't have it. Just real quick pause. Ishmael's a teenager. He's about 16 by this point in the story. Verse 9 says that he's making fun of Isaac, who is like two or three. It is very common for brothers who have a large age gap to make fun of each other. Uh, if you have that in your family, you will know what I'm talking about. This is not abnormal boy behavior. So some of it is normal. But on the other side, it's also not good. It's not positive, right? This isn't what you want to see from, from brothers who are going to live together. This isn't what you want to see at all. But it shouldn't surprise us that a child born into this situation who's living life in this way uh, is difficult. He was born into hostility. He's immediately treated as the other son as soon as Isaac was born. There is nothing good about this kid's life at this point. He's a teenager. We shouldn't blame a teenager for acting like a teenager and like put everything on him. Uh, he was neglected. He was looked down upon. He was rejected. This was not probably the safest spot for him to be living uh, as someone who was growing up. So let's see what happens as we continue. Verse 11. This upset Abraham very much because Ishmael was his son. But God told him, told Abraham, don't be upset over the boy and your servant. Do whatever Sarah tells you, for Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. But I will also make a nation of the descendants of Hagar's son, because he is your son too. So Abram got up early the next morning, prepared food and a container of water, strapped him on Hagar's shoulders. Then he sent her away with his son, and she wandered aimlessly in the wilderness of Beersheba. So separation happens. And again, if you haven't gotten it, Hagar and Ishmael are not at fault. <laughs> they are the people in the middle of this dysfunctional relationship, as we're seeing very, very clearly. Abraham and Sarah tried to make God do what they wanted, and it blew up in their face. That was the problem. Hagar and Ishmael are stuck until now. So let's see what happens in verse 15. When the water was gone, she put the boy in the shade of a bush. Then she went and sat down by herself about a hundred yards away. I don't want to watch the boy die. She burst into tears. But God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. Hagar, what's wrong? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy crying 
as he lies there. Go to him and comfort him, for I will make a great nation from his descendants. They're dying. Maybe they got lost. Maybe they ran out of supplies. They're in the desert. Who knows what led to it? But they're dying. And Ishmael, as a 16-year-old, it would have taken him a while to die, right? You know, our bodies are a little bit stronger at that point. But Hagar sees her 16-year-old son dying. And she says, I can't handle this. I can't deal. And she, she doesn't walk away. But she goes to where, she goes by herself to just weep. And in that moment, as this 16-year-old boy is dying, we're told that God hears and that he speaks. And he says, don't be afraid. God has heard the boy crying. Don't be afraid. God has heard. Friends, who needs to hear those words today? As I was praying about this week, I just felt it just so strongly that God's speaking to some of us who are looking at situations in our life and are saying, I completely connect with Hagar. I can't handle to watch that suffering. I can't handle to deal. It's too much. God, I need you to come and to move. I need you to come and to act in the middle of this situation. God has heard. Don't be afraid. And I think the good news this morning is that God is still the God who has heard. And he's still the God who is moving. He's still actively moving in our world. He's still the God who sees you in the middle of that spot. And so what I want to do, just real quick, and I know that this takes a little bit, but honestly, if you're in this spot, you're pretty okay with being a little bit desperate for God to come and move. If this is hitting you and you're like, I feel a little bit like Hagar, or maybe I feel a lot like Hagar, I just want to invite you to stand up, and I want us to pray for you as your church. And to invite God to come be the God who sees you and who is moving. So if that's you, just stand up so that we can pray for you and invite Jesus to come and to move in your situation. Amen. If you're looking, if you're, see, if you're not going to stand, I'll say it that way. I want you to stand. At least raise your hands towards somebody around you. And let them know that they are being loved on right now. So stand up. Let's pray for these people. We're going to take a couple of minutes and just invite Jesus to come and to be the God who shows up. Amen. Amen. Let's see what happens next. Then God opened Hagar's eyes and she saw a well full of water. She quickly filled her water container and she gave the boy a drink. That's the good news. He didn't just see her, but he acted. 
she opened her eyes and she saw a well full of water. And God was with the boy as he grew up in the wilderness and he became a skillful archer and he settled in the wilderness of Paran and his mother arranged for him to marry a woman from the land of Egypt. God's grace is not just for Abraham, not just for Sarah, not just for Isaac. It's for Hagar and it's for Ishmael as well. His grace was for them. Can you imagine the joy that Hagar felt in that moment? She started to look at her life and everything had changed. This woman who was treated as property, who was abused sexually, physically, verbally, emotionally, she is free. She has full license over her life. She could pick and choose what she does and who she does it with. Hagar now sees her son flourishing She's restored because the God who saw her in the desert, in her desperation, in her place of suffering and pain, showed himself to be true and to be kind. The story of Hagar is the story of somebody who is seen by God. It's the story of a God caring for those who have no one else who cares about them. It's the story of hope for those who have been neglected, abused, and rejected. It's the story of hope for those who have lived like Abraham and Sarah and have tried to take things into their own hands and just done what is normative. It's a story that says in the middle of it that God sees you, that God's going to restore you, that God has a better plan than you do, and that in the midst of the mess, God is going to come and he is going to meet you. If you're like Sarah and you're struggling to believe that God's actually going to provide and do what it is that he's promised, the question for us, are we willing to let God be in control? If you're like Abraham and you look at your life and you realize that you've made a mess of things, that you've behaved badly or at least mediocrely, the good news is that God wants to bring healing. So are you willing to allow God to bring healing to your brokenness? If you're like Hagar and you feel invisible, are you willing to be seen by the God who sees you? The God who sees you is here. Can anything ever separate us from God's love? Can it, does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us because the God who sees us is here. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because the God who sees us is here. Let's pray, and then we're going to worship. You can stand. Jesus, I just thank you that you are here. And that just like Hagar, that's not just... Uh, some like vague, you know, uh, thing that we say that we, we hope for, but that it's a practical, like personal felt reality that you are here among us. 
And I ask for you to come even more. Come and bring your presence in this place. Let us walk out of here saying and wonder like Hagar, have I actually been seen by God? Have I actually been seen by God who is working in our world? Come, Lord Jesus. We love you, and we are yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.